0: Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am so excited and happy to bring you the conversation I had with Toby Matheson. Toby is a historian and political scientist with a focus on the Mideast and global Islam. Uh, He's been a senior research fellow in international relations in the Mideast at St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford, where he's taught courses on international relations in the Middle East, politics of the Middle East, and the history and society of the Gulf States. He remains an associate member of Oxford University's Department of Politics and International Relations. He is also uh, the Marie Curie Global Fellow at Stanford University, uh, and uh, soon to be later this year, he is at the University of Bristol as senior lecturer in Global Religious Studies and Global Islam. Uh, he's written a handful of books, including the most recent. The Caliph and the Imam, The Making of Sunnism and Shiism, which is a global history of Sunni-Shia relations. Um, And that's what we talk about in this conversation. Uh, I forgot how I came across this book, but um, I was able to, to, to get it and read it. And it was, I mean, just a really opening of my understanding not only of islam but also of i could i guess you could say global history and global politics of course islam is one of the major religions of the world over a billion people are uh, practicing islam and i think we do a, a great disservice to ourselves if we don't understand something that has captivated the hearts and minds of billions of people on the planet and I really kind of walked away from reading the book, and certainly after having the conversation with Toby about what what all of these um, kind of uh, different uh, divisions and the relations of various aspects of um, Islam are about, where where they come from, their history, and so it's it's very informational, but I think it's also really helpful in trying to understand a little bit more. Uh, when folks engage with you know, you know their peers or friends um, that may be uh, Muslim and and have a more you know open understanding of things and and hopefully it can be um, very helpful in that way at least it was for me. We start by talking about this this kind of divide of Sunni versus you know Shia and and he talks about in the book and in the conversation of why that's not true entirely to make it a kind of us versus them of course there are uh, moments where they've you know it's been more acrimonious but a lot of the times it's you know coexisting or living uh, together at different points in history some are positive or negative but uh, it's not a exactly a us versus them type of way of framing it and it's a probably a poor framing we talk about the origins of islam uh, starting with the prophet muhammad and and most importantly where this all kind of ramps up is this idea of succession you know after the prophet died you know how does islam kind of uh, carry forward so we talk about that we talk about the various schools of jurisprudence uh, we talk about the shia century and the interactions there with the crusades uh, we talk about the role of the ottoman empire with islam of course if you do any type of history, uh, read any book or study anything of history in the past thousand years globally, you're going to eventually bump into the Ottomans. They were you know, obviously around for over 600 years, so super se- essential for global history. Talk about the impact of the Safids with the Ottomans, talk about Wahhabism, uh, the British rule and how they organized Islamic laws in India, modernization of the Ottoman Empire, Pan Islam and nationalism in the 20th century, Turkey and how they became more modern in the 20th century, uh, the Ba'ath Party and the making of uh, Ba'athism, the Muslim Brotherhood, the U.S. involvement in the Middle East, the Arab Spring, uh, the Syrian conflict, which is still ongoing, unfortunately, and many, many other topics. Uh, again, it was, I mean, just an absolute delight uh, to talk with Toby. I really, really enjoyed this conversation immensely. Uh, I thought about it for, for days after. Um, just, just really opened and broadened my horizons of understanding, uh, religion and global history and people groups. And he's, he's just fantastic. His book is extremely well-researched. It's, it's really a, a kind of tour de force in that way. Um, very, uh, accessible, easy to read, a lot of information. And I think it was, it's just very, very, very helpful. Um, so I can't recommend that book, um, uh, more highly, it's it's fantastic, and he's he's absolutely wonderful to engage with, and, and just a, a wonderful person. As always, you can find uh, this conversation and all other conversations, uh, past and upcoming, at uh, convergingdialogues.substack.com. Get over there, subscribe, tell your friends, share all the things. Um, also on YouTube, you can subscribe there as well. Uh, trying to continue to make this stuff accessible for everybody. Um, And so I I also would uh, welcome any engagement uh, you have on listening to these conversations and any other questions and things like that. So uh, subscribe and share and all the wonderful stuff there. And uh, now I bring you Toby Matheson. I am here with Toby Matheson. Uh, Toby, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to this.
1: Me too. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you have written uh, a fabulous book um, that I uh, absolutely just kind of inhaled. Uh, it's not a lot of, um, it's, I, I can't find, in, at least in English, a lot of books that have a kind of uh, really good history of this topic in one place. And so uh, it's obviously well-researched, as we were talking about before we got on. Uh, the book is called The Caliph and the Imam, The Making of Sunnism and Shiism. Um, so this is something that uh, I haven't talked about too much on the podcast, so I'm I'm very excited to get all of your uh, hard research and work uh, downloaded here. So I'm, I'm very excited. So before we get into it, um, just tell listeners who you are, uh, what your background is, you know, professionally, educationally, all that good stuff, and uh, what you're currently up to.
1: Sure. Uh, I'm Toby Mathieson. I'm uh, currently a Marie Curie Global Research Fellow at Stanford and at uh, Kafoskari in Venice and joining the University of Bristol as a senior lecturer in global Islam um, after the summer. And I've uh, quite... You know, for for many years worked broadly speaking on this topic on sort of, you know, confessional relations in in the Muslim world, in the Middle East, uh, the politics of the Middle East and its modern history um, uh, at numerous universities, uh, including Oxford and Cambridge and SOAS and so on and so forth. So. Yes. But this is my first sort of attempt to put all of these, you know, wider questions into one, um, you know, one book and and try to answer sort of broader questions and write for a broader audience as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Well, I think it's 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 uh, it's much needed. So I've I've uh, I've been uh, really excited to talk about these topics. Uh, I guess just a a few kind of particulars. How long did it take you to write the book? So it's a it's a a pretty big book, as it it should be. Uh, As I was saying, it's it's well-researched. Um I'm assuming you're at least familiar with uh, many of of the languages of the region, uh, the Arabic. I'm assuming uh, <laughs> at least some familiarity, if not uh, fluency. Uh, but yeah, how, how I guess just a little bit real quick. how was the process and how long did it take and all that stuff? i'm I'm very interested in this.
1: I mean, broadly speaking, I've been interested in this uh, topic for the last 15 years. Um, my PhD was sort of on a sub theme of this broader topic on Saudi Arabia, especially and the uh, Shi minority in Saudi Arabia and its relationship with the state and also with Iran and sort of, you know, Gulf uh, Shia and their relationship with Iran and Saudi and so on. So broadly speaking, I've been trying to think about this for you know 15 years, and people have been asking me uh, to to sort of write a wider uh, account for for quite a while. Um, but uh, really, uh, the the proper process for for this book started, I guess, in 2015, 2016 um uh, so about 8 years um and uh, i also didn't necessarily expect uh, it to take so long or to uh, end up being so long but um i think that's what happens if you if you delve into a you know a pretty big topic and and also try to do it uh, uh, justice mm-hmm. yeah
0: so let's let's start with um i think what is i think we can define the terms i guess but i, I feel like We'll just kind of start somewhat uh, in in modern times or contemporary. So, some when people I think at least in the so-called West, <clears throat> um, people will have ideas about um, you know Islam, right? It's a, it's a major religion. Um, people might know about the you know the Prophet Muhammad, the Quran, you know the kind of basic stuff, and people will know there's many different kinds of um, divisions, like there is with any any religion um so how do we how what how do many people make of this sunni shia divide or split and which again is is something that you uh do very well in the book to say like these 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 two different uh, if you will factions aren't pitted against each other necessarily i hope some people try to make that narrative but um yeah how do we understand just kind of more just as a general you know Prelude of this kind of sia sunium uh, divide, and uh, maybe why that's maybe not so accurate, uh, I guess at least currently.
1: Yeah, I mean, the problem in a way already starts with sort of terminology and how we uh, approach the subject, because um, sort of the history uh, of of the study of religion in sort of universities in the Europe and the United States, and so on, sociology of religion the 19th century and 20th century was largely based on the study of Christianity and um, Judaism to a lesser extent. But so, you know, in Christianity, as we all know, I mean, the sort of the major split, uh, in a sense, happened in the Reformation uh, much later in the you know, in a completely different scenario from when the religion was first um, founded. And um, so a lot of the terminology is sort of associated with that. So it's sort of the church and the sect, uh, mm-hmm. in a sense, so of the sect splitting off from the mainstream, like in a Protestant way and, and protesting against sort of the churches. Uh, path and so on and so forth. and so people then when they started writing about other religions um uh, compared and and used the same terminology to try to make sense of of other religions. Now when it comes to Islam, the topic of this book, uh this doesn't make much sense because the this the the original split happened right after the death of the prophet. Muhammad and um you know the different branches sort of developed um you know for for many you know for 1400 years and in and of themselves are sort of consistent and they don't see themselves as you know a sect or a split off from the mainstream i mean there are various tendencies that see themselves as the the mainstream so i mean one of the first problems that i had with the book or you know some of the things that i'm trying to do is try to get away from that you know loaded terminology that um Uh, People have. So I I rarely use the term sect or sectarianism, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, But I try to do justice, um, especially to Sunnism and Shiism as the two main branches of Islam that, you know, in and of themselves can be pretty, you know, um, I mean, they can be consistent in themselves, even though the other side might criticize what they're doing. But, you know, they see themselves both as as sort of uh, the mainstream um, of of Islam, and um, you know, this is in some ways new because Shiism has often been uh, seen as a sort of you know, well, a side uh, aspect of, of mainstream Islam. So if you look at like previous history books of Islam or or how it is taught um, in, in schools or universities historically. Uh, Shiism was often seen just sort of as a, you know, as a, as a yeah, as a, as a split off sort of from from mainstream Islam, which was uh, Sunnism. So in the book, I'm trying to be more inclusive and and look at the relationship between the different branches. Mm,
0: yeah, no, that's 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 great. I think it's a nice way of kind of uh, setting up the tone. So we'll, we'll come to the the major divide in a minute, <clears throat> or right, or the way the way it's it's uh, it's branched out, but. Um, I guess just kind of give us the broad overview of uh, the Prophet Muhammad, um, how Islam began in the seventh century, middle middle of the seventh century, Um, and it seems to be. I think other people have noted this that there was this difference in style between Muhammad of Medina and Muhammad of Mecca. Is kind of a difference there. Um, So yeah, just kind of give us the broad overview of of just kind of him and then how you know uh, Islam kind of started, and then what was it about you know kind of succession. Uh, after he passed and and how people started to kind of follow him i mean anytime there's a new religion uh, or a new following let's say at the time you know it doesn't necessarily take off and and uh, you know you can see again other examples of this like with christianity but yeah so just kind of give us a broad overview
1: yes i mean you know this might take quite a while so i'm just as much as as much runway as as you need go ahead but go ahead but of course initially um you know when the when the Prophet Muhammad received the revelation and and sort of proclaimed himself as a prophet uh, of of God, um, uh, there were only a few followers. And and for a while, it was actually uh, quite difficult. And um, uh, it took a while to to have a sort of mass um, appeal. And and when that came, sort of these early followers, um, you know, had, of course, a a special status. So in a sense, like, um, you know, embracing the cause earlier was seen as um yeah i mean as, as 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 more worthy or you know than than later so um and here we're right getting sort of uh to the heart um of the of the matter because sunnis and she is sort of disagree uh over who were the first followers and who were the most important um followers because then um you know towards later in his life um uh the the new religion Islam had had a mass appeal and immediately you know, spread um, uh, you know pretty fast pretty quickly, um, but uh, succession was not um, uh, you know officially uh, regulated um, or or not in a way that that broadly speaking all Muslims would accept. Uh, so after his death, there was uh, immediately, um, you know, uh, um, well, disagreement about who would succeed him. And by that time, you know, the Muslims already controlled pretty, you know, large parts um, of, of the Arabian Peninsula and and, and went, um, you know, further further out. So this was an incredibly important um, question. And so um, some people said that uh, Abu Bakr uh, uh, was, of course, you know, should be his main successor. And others said, no, it should be Ali. Um, And, um, uh, you know, those who favored Abu Bakr would today be considered the Sunnis, and those who favored Ali would today be considered the Shia. I mean, this is another issue. These terms were not used at the time, Sunni Mm -hmm. and Shia. Mm -hmm. uh, They were um, later on, you know, written into the the history or given to these groups. And and, um, so... The meaning of these terms uh, also changed. One has to be careful. Uh, Ali eventually became the fourth caliph, accepted by Sunnis as well. So Ali is a crucial figure in this story. It's you know it's, he's very revered by Sunnis and by Shia, but his particular position is is seen as different um, uh, by Shia. The Shia I think um, he and his offspring um, were were actually designated by the prophet, um, something the Sunnis don't accept as i mean you know as his actual successor and that they had some special charisma and knowledge and and you know that the bloodline was very important for for succession and that this you know this this family of the prophet uh, the ahl al bait as they're also called were wronged right from the start so i mean you know in the book i make the argument that afterwards you know there were you know the the question was largely political you know in in different centuries it could matter more or less but but ultimately, you know, it is at the start, you know, really of 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 the religion that uh, you know this this fundamental disagreement um, took place, and, and that has been invoked uh, ever since by by various um, you know factions and so on.
0: Yeah, so I think you say in the book uh, in good uh, way to point out that obviously these terms weren't used at the time, but it, what we would know today is that there was um, Sunnis that the succession was based on. The community's elite uh, on merit, and uh, Shia is based on uh, the succession was based on designation of the of his his cousin, I believe Ali, and then all of the subsequent offspring. And so, I mean, is it is it too reductionistic to say these two major groups that are again, there's a whole long history here between many centuries, but that it really was. I don't want to say a disagreement, but it was basically one one group is saying, like, you know, in terms of like closeness to to the prophet, it was, you know, this is somebody a kind of a bloodline or it's a type of bloodline. And so this is what's, you know, you know, the real thing or the you know, closest, or 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 was it something more than that, right? So was it, you know, more political or was it more doctrinal, or was it more um uh, you know something something other than just this kind of you know simplistic succession thing of who who's next after him um was there more to that or does that come later i guess initially what was was that really it was it just this disagreement of who's closest to him and who gets to like take on the mantle of sorts after his his uh death
1: yeah i guess it's all of these uh questions together uh in a sense so um uh yeah. And, and uh, you know, to explain really later on, you know, to explain today's uh, uh, events and so on, I, I think this early period, you know, one doesn't need to overstate it either. I mean, it is the, uh, you know, the origin of, of, of everything, but it's sort of the way in which it has been evoked in later period, which, which matters, because there were also many periods when this division actually didn't really matter so much anymore and could be, you know, toned down and people could get along um very very well. But I think sort of the emotional resonance of that early split um, you know, for both sides is is yeah. I mean, Shia think uh, you know, the Islamic history took a wrong turn at the start. Mm. And and Sunnis think, well the Shia they 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 sort of didn't go with the mainstream and um and sort of deviated from you know what the yeah the, I mean what what should should be just they should just accept what what happened because in the early period that the majority of the Muslim community followed the, the four caliphs and, and what came to be sort of the Sunni standard norms um, and, um, and and broadly speaking this has been sort of the pattern you know with mm. a few exceptions like the Shi Center which I guess we'll talk about later but I mean Sunnism has become the, the majority uh, form of, 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 of the religion um, and so um, but yeah, I mean that this early split has, uh, extreme emotional, uh, resonance mm. and, um, mm. it does also have a, a class element or a sort of, you know, elite element, uh, uh to it because mm. some of the, the Sonny Caleb's were from the, you know, the, the elite of, of that, um, Hijazi, uh, um, you know, community, uh, there at the time and, um, some of them initially didn't embrace uh, the prophet's message so so there is a uh, you know a lot of potential there to um um well to look for uh, difference but at the same time um, as i mentioned ali uh, you know is is a figure bo- accepted by both although in slightly different terms but um you know with he is also, in a sense, the unifying uh, figure of of Islam. Uh, so, so he married the prophet's uh, daughter, and therefore, you know, there's their offspring are considered. The prophet didn't have a a, a male heir who, uh, you know, survived. Um, uh, so, so the yeah, I mean, the, the children of 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 Ali and his daughter are considered um, the family of the, the prophet in a in a narrow sense. Mm. Mm. And um yeah.
0: You yeah, you're talking about uh, Ali as being uh, super important, but I think maybe uh one reason of this is the descendants. So the so obviously I'm as a as a Westerner might I don't know Arabic, so all of my, my pronunciation is gonna be super terrible, so forgive me. But uh, all of his descendants, uh Al Al Bayt, uh they they were the the ones that kind of carried it on. Uh, you, you explain on the Sunni side is that uh, you had the, the, the certain caliphs, the Umayyad uh, caliphs, right? Is this mm-hmm. right? And um, I guess how after his death, you know, maybe there's some unifying, you know, figure of sorts with Ali. But again, how was there, you know, as, as you move further away from, you know, the prophet and then maybe after the death of Ali, did it seem to kind of splinter more? um or or did it still kind of seem more of like well here's the the descendants of ali so that's closer and we just kind of follow along how did it as it started to go through the seventh and then eighth century how, how was the the um following i guess uh you know f- staying in line with with this or did they continue to splinter
1: yeah, I mean, at the beginning, there were also other sort of groups that had, you know, different ideas, which died out, which we don't know much about, um, mm. and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, the broad categories of of Sunnism and Shiism, and there's a, there's a third branch, Uh, uh they, uh, you know, they, they started to include um, people of very different opinions, you know, they became broad movements, but within these movements, there was also a lot of Diversity. So, um, eventually, uh, Sunnism started to incorporate three—I mean, three major schools of thought and, and four schools of jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. Although that's you know, it's a bit later. And and the Shia—they also have three major uh, schools of jurisprudence um, within Shiism. So, 12 Shiism, Ismailism, and uh, Zaydism and they uh, the difference between them is they you know they disagree on the line of imams so um you know several successors um to ali and and his uh, his children uh you know eventually there was there were two splits two major splits and um so they followed a sort of different familial line and and say you know they are the the important uh, uh, leaders and um Ismailis um, have a line until today, actually, which mm. they say goes back, uh, you know, their Imam, the Aga Khan. Today, I mean, of, of the main majority line of Ismailis, is that sort of Imam, um, you know, officially uh, with a line going back to to the Prophet. Uh, in the other, especially in 12 Shiism, the um, the line ended with the Twelfth Imam, who they say uh, disappeared, and uh, you know will return on the day of Dutch judgment. I and mean, that's why they're called uh, 12 or um, Shia. But so, you know, within the two broad movements, Sunnis and Shia, there was a lot of um, diversity um, mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, splits um, within them. And sometimes the rivalries, you know, in those two movements could be as strong as the ri- rivalries um, between them. So mm-hmm. you also have a period when the four uh, Sunni schools of jurisprudence um, you know, don't get along uh, at all with each other so i mean I want to
0: come to the the schools of jurisprudence uh, uh that you're referencing there, but I guess one quick note here is all of this stuff is really important for folks that are believers of uh of islam because i mean it's the holy prophet right it's their it's their their main um uh, you know figure main figurehead there there and and then also you know this is coming from Allah from from God there's all of the, the you know the Quran i mean this stuff has big importance right like it has like this isn't just you know a guy out in you know arabia that had some cool ideas right like this is this is at the same level i mean it's obviously a huge religion right like this has these these the, all of these splits and how people are doing things I would imagine has a lot of is is pretty consequential, right? Of how to do it, how to follow it. Are we doing this the right way? Are we doing you know the will of God or Allah? Um, are we reading the Quran in the right way? And is it is it that is it? It's like big, 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 big stakes. It's not just That's some cool ideas. Maybe you have your way, I have my way. Like people are putting you know really a lot of investment into this. Is is that?
1: Am yes, I overstating maybe. it or or not? No, I mean this is incredibly <laughs> important and that's why it's also, you know, important to be a bit, um, you know, careful when talking about it or writing about it not to offend sure. uh, anyone especially, you know, these are sensitive issues. It's one sure. reason why the footnotes ended up being so long, you know, because <laughs> yeah. sometimes I I just wanted to, you know, quickly explain, you know, what are the different views on a on a fairly simple matter but then, you know, to, mm. you need to reference um this properly because it's it's contested. Yeah, uh, and often contested, you know, from different sides. As I just mentioned, there might be different opinions in Sunnism or in Shiism on a particular matter, mm. um, and um, yeah, it's important to be sort of careful um, about this. So, you know, one of the main problems, in a sense, that arose in in, in Islam or you know in, in any other religion was that you know in the beginning, the the word of the prophet and whatever he did was was seen as law. I mean, yeah, was seen as, you know, this is the way to do it and it has to be emulated. And then, you know, after he, he died, um, uh, people uh, started to, I mean, the first generation of Muslims, they still remembered how he did things or what he said. Mm-hmm. And what he said would become the, I mean, well, the Quran would be eventually uh, written down. Um, and you know one of the important things, for example, is that um, eventually actually uh, Sunnis and Shias uh, uh, agree on, 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 on the one on the Quran as one text. Mm. So um, historically there were a lot of polemics that perhaps you know people would see or that some things had been omitted or, or, or so on. But today, um, you know, all major Sunni and Shia scholars agree on the same text, so it's actually mm-hmm. pretty big, you know, agreement here. Uh, yeah. It's also important yeah. uh, to note. But then the second, so the, the the two main things, I mean, in a sense that people, you know, Muslims should should follow is is the Quran and the the guidance left by the Prophet uh, through his uh, actions. So mm-hmm. that's often called the the Sunnah, the tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, here is now where you know uh, uh, there are already uh, diverging um, opinions because, um, uh, well, Shia have a different uh, view of, of what that tradition is from uh, Sunnis. But the term Sunni comes from this Sunnah, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which is that sort of uh, you know the, the meaning of this whole body of of things that that he did or said uh, in his lifetime. Um, And so Islamic law as a discipline um, starts to form around how to interpret uh, the Quran and the Sunnah to make, you know, to to regulate life for for Muslims ever after uh, until today. So this is how then the the different legal schools become uh, formed. And, um, you know, for for many Muslims for many centuries, this was incredibly important. And, Mm. uh, you know, these rulings, um, yeah, I mean, shaped, um, you know, everything really i mean the whole life and and uh, you know the legal um system and it is here uh, that you know there were pretty strong disagreements between uh, sunnis uh, and shia because um um shia said that also you know the imams so the sort of successors of the prophet whatever they said and and did is also law so there's a much w- wider body of of precedents and so on that you could choose from and that eventually led to you know some different interpretations um so when you know in in sort of she ruled states um or or in states where where both systems were allowed um this happened mainly later under colonialism and and so on and so forth and in the modern period you have actually differences on you know inheritance law or or divorce or or things like that which can be quite significant um so yeah does that make sense more of a- it it does it does i mean
0: I, I mean i know this is obviously i mean again extremely consequential and and, and yes i mean I, you you are terribly respectful in the book and and uh, so obviously for, for for myself as well i'll be respectful for people's uh opinions and belief systems i i guess the the question I have here is is a so we can get to the schools of jurisprudence. So there's the four major Sunni schools and then the two major Shia schools, which you had mentioned earlier a little bit. I guess the question here is so when I think of jurisprudence, I think of like law, like 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 a legal system, mm-hmm. right? So so this isn't these aren't necessarily schools of thought or like it's not philosophy it's not wisdom it's not um you know some type of uh aphorisms necessary you know, it's, it's not something like it's not like a wisdom tradition or philosophy tradition like these are these are rules these are laws that you have to follow and the different schools are the different interpretations based on the quran and the the sunnah of how to how to do that is is that like a a, a loose way of explaining that or or am I, am I missing something um
1: yeah no i think you're you're right uh, no the, the legal schools they they are there to you know devise rulings and establish a, a legal system and they i i focus on them quite a lot in the book because i think they're you know pretty important at different points in history including sort of in the early modern and and modern periods when you know when 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 you know someone dies actually you know now he's being questioned you know so which legal school does his estate for example become you know mm. regulated mm. uh through and and so this starts to be you know something you can't really escape in mm. in certain contexts and then you get sort of ticked you know get, get put in a in a box so to speak but on the schools of thought um there is is um you know uh a lot of overlap also between the the different sides so um in philosophy especially and and sort of you know reasoning and so on and so forth um there's been a, a lot of uh, conversation between nominally sunni and Shi scholars over the centuries and that's also one of the themes that i pick up at at times that actually in in certain areas um there's been a lot of influence uh, from from you know the different sides uh, you know onto each other um, that, you know, in certain periods was not a problem. Um, even the legal schools influenced each other. So the Sunni legal schools were sort of earlier in, in codifying themselves. That influenced strongly the Shi'i the legal schools. Because the Shi'i yeah, the legal schools for a while had, uh, had imams still living who could sort of act as guiders. Um, uh, and uh, so, yeah, there was also strong influence uh, there. So, I mean, one of the themes of the book is also well influence and, and and shared knowledge and and interaction and so on and so forth so it's mm. not just conflict or or divergence um mm. uh, eventually i guess it is a story of of hardening uh identity boundaries uh, you know over over the whole time span mm. but um you know within that there was a lot of time for you know communication and and cross referencing and uh, and interaction and so on and so forth especially in in like also in non legal disciplines of of knowledge, mm. so you have all these you have these all these other disciplines mathematics as you know mm. uh, uh, natural sciences uh, um, uh, um, astronomy and so on and so forth where people I mean it never really matters what um, uh, w- which were very important in sort of Islamic societies medieval period mm. where people don't think about you know what's that. Other person's religious background when they Mm. cite someone.
0: Mm. So this this really does sound like it's more of as you branch out to other disciplines about maybe the the natural world or even metaphysical claims. Less important about the different school, but it's more of you know when it comes to the Quran and the Sunnah and and understanding certain interpretive aspects of that. That's where maybe has a a, a more of a, a sticking point.
1: The. The four uh, uh, um, Sunni schools are the Hanbali, Maliki, Hanafi, and Shafi mm. schools. And on the Sunni side, it's uh, the Ismaili, zaydis and, and uh, Twelver, uh, Shia. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, the book sort of looks at the relations between all of them. Um, uh, and as I mentioned, like in later periods, so in the 10th century, 11th century, um, you have this period that's sometimes been called the the Shi' century, when especially mm. Ismailis uh, take power in numerous key locations. So The Fatimids uh, start to rule Egypt, um, and and actually much of the southern uh, Mediterranean. Uh, it's it's quite spectacular, really. You know, including uh, you know Sicily and, and 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 much of North Africa, really. Uh, and there's a moment where you might say, well, maybe uh, Islamic history goes uh, in a different direction, in a sense that that Shiism becomes, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, well, perhaps even the majority. Um, but then the Crusades play a big role in, um, in, 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 you know, uh, uh, well putting everything um you know again in in, in turmoil and um you know there's this there's, there's constant wars and so on and so forth and the isma'ilis also fight amongst each other there's a rival ismaili power based in the gulf and in iraq and you know they they disagree on a on a you know relatively minor matter but doctrinally um, but therefore you know fight each other and sort of you know lead to each other's downfall And uh, associated with that sort of then trying to push the crusaders out, there's a period sometimes called the Sunni revival. Mm -hmm. So associated with people like Saladin and and so on and so forth, who eventually abolishes the uh, Fatimid uh, empire. So uh, the book problematizes these easy categorizations. I mean, Mm -hmm. on the one hand, we need Mm -hmm. guidelines to sort Mm -hmm. of make broad sense of periods. But uh, for example, the, in the Shi century, there was very little conversion, top-down conversion, and also, you know, in the Sunni century, in, in the Sunni revival, you know, it wasn't like the Xi population that did exist were converted to Sunnism uh, or something like that. So, mm-hmm. so in this sort of pre-1500 uh, era, uh, states, I mean, you know, it's not like today we understand the state had had fairly loose control. Mm, sort of the religious symbolism was was largely sort of symbolic, often associated with the capital and, and sort of state um, in a sense rituals uh, and 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 there was fairly little mass conversion. Um, uh, and, and if this conversion happened, it took a very long time. So it was more through let's say tax taxation or or you know, tax incentives for, Believers versus non-believers of whatever was the the right creed or the right religion um, at the moment, but but not sort of saying, well, you know, you have to buy by next week, you you have to convert or you know, mm-hmm. else something really bad will happen to you. So that I think problematizes these broad um, characterizations.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Is it's, it's interesting how you talk about the kind of the Shia kind of century? I mean, that's a long time. I mean, it's not like you know, it's, it's you know, talking you know, decades and decades of decades. Going spanning two two centuries, um, I, I guess in, in in that sense was you know it's a different time and there's all these things going on in the world, but in this region there, there wasn't an emphasis necessarily on how do we spread this and get everybody else to believe you know uh, Islam necessarily. I mean, was there any type of conversion going on, or was this more of you know more regional types of conflicts or or you know, domination, or I guess what was the motivations here? Politically, for for the Shia or or the Sunnis, and in, in no, I mean,
1: areas. ultimately, yes, there was mass conversion to to Islam. I mean, the story of the first few centuries of the Muslim, you know, expansion and and, and conquest uh, is, is a conversion to Islam of of, of many many populations. But um, again, it, that happened largely also through, uh, yeah, like tax incentives and and things like that, or mm-hmm. you know. In, in, in you know what's today's Syria and and the Levant, for example, is a process mm. that took several um, centuries. Um, uh, uh, I have a colleague at Oxford uh, uh, Christian Sahner who, who wrote about this sort of you know the slow conversion to Islam in in the Levant, you know how did it happen and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, my book looks more at you know inner Islamic relations. So you know mm-hmm. once uh, people you know embrace Islam, maybe often it was a very loose understanding of what it meant. Um, uh, so uh uh you know one of the arguments that one could make is that you know this this idea that you know the the family of the prophet um uh, there was some you know tangible um uh well, the rituals uh, and and so on and so forth. There was also visual depictions at time of the family of the prophet that that was perhaps more easy to, for people to relate to. So, it became a, a big you know role in in public uh, relig- religiosity, including a in newly converted uh, populations. And it wasn't necessarily seen as something she or something Sunni. It was just broadly speaking seen as something um, uh, Muslim, uh, mm. uh, I guess. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, Sorry. On on the crusades piece, I remember reading that in the book and it seemed like there was a kind of not necessarily unification, but like a, there was a more of a, I guess, a a common enemy, right? Where where it was like, you know, these people are are coming over here and they're doing all this stuff. And like, you know, we might have our own differences, but that's probably more of a threat. You know, the crusades or what they were doing and how it was. Is, Is that a right characterization or no?
1: Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, yes. I mean, in the beginning, uh, the Crusades were seen as just sort of another um, a- another power. I mean, no one mm-hmm. really knew that they were going to, you know, for several centuries, try mm-hmm. to, you know, set up a massive settler state in mm-hmm. in, in Jer- around Jerusalem and all the the, the southern. Mediterranean coast, I mean I think people local people didn't understand that and and the local powers also didn't understand that. and probably the Crusades themselves didn't really mm-hmm. know that they were gonna have so many crusades and and waste so much resources uh, and energy on this mm-hmm. um and so initially there was not that sort of common reaction, and there was quite a lot of sort of you know they they made alliances temporary with this or that ruler. Mm. um uh you know one of the interesting things somehow is also you know the undermining this whole christian muslim rivalry you know that's always been going on uh is that um obviously the the crusades started with a call from the uh, orthodox uh, uh um uh, patriarch in uh constantinople yeah. um uh but then eventually uh the the, the orthodox uh, church was was ransacked and and uh, you know the the catholics uh you know once they had established sort of control um they they uh, it was absolutely not a uh, uh, christian solidarity but in fact christian uh, sectarian rivalry that that also uh, uh was very um uh, powerful here, and also, you know, uh, some of the Christian churches in that existed in the Levant. Um, uh, you know, once the Crusades were there, they started looking at at them more closely and saying, "Well, actually, you're not following the right doctrine, and and you know, you have to change, mm. um, and so on and so forth." So on on both sides, I guess there was much more diversity um, than than is commonly uh, assumed. But you know, fundamentally, the Crusades. Were just another period of upheaval, and it definitely undermined, you know, helped also undermine, sort of broadly speaking, Sunni, uh, rule, sort of the early Sunni caliphates, and um, uh, this intensified later uh, in the uh, 13th century when the the Mongols uh, start conquering, you know, much of the the, the region that were. Talking about here and eventually, um, you know, overthrowing and abolishing the Abbasid uh, Caliphate, which is this mm. other main Caliphate that that succeeded the uh, Umayyads and 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 played such an important role for for several centuries. So you have several times sort of external powers conquering what by then is becoming sort of the core of the Islamic world and. Um, Uh, Decentralizing religious and political authority, and when that happens, um, you know, movements that that are not, you know, from from different perspectives can flourish. Mm. And um, so this, I think, in part explains why so many, you know, different branches survived and 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 strengthened um uh, for a long time, and these include the ismailis and and twelve shia uh, and the various groups that exist until today in, in syria and and Lebanon, such as the Druze or the alawites um uh, and also the maronites and and sort of several you know smaller Christian uh, mm. groups that are you know don't conform to Catholicism or to mm. you know uh Sunnism. yeah, it's just super fascinating how.
0: <laughs> how how oh, how perfect. these things persist how these groups persist for so long it's just fascinating so we talk about um, muslim empires so obviously the ottomans are much talked about it's, it's almost like this I, I find i keep bumping into the ottoman empire and everything i'm reading and i'll talk to people and oh it pops up in this history and pops up in this history and even even because it went so long it's over 600 years and um uh, it was. In, I had a conversation recently with a with a, a historian scholar on on Suleiman, who who you know was is super fascinating, super interesting. I think in the 16th century, if I'm right. So I guess just from your perspective, you know, so you have this kind of period where you know post Crusades, kind of you know the Mongols are still there, but after this period, and we get into the 14th, I think 14th century. um, and you know, getting close to fifteenth and sixteenth century, where there's that kind of you know big pivot that a lot of historians discuss, what was it, I guess, about the Ottomans that made them super powerful and influential for Islam? I mean they have their own kind of um uh, way of centralizing power and how they governed at different points but how 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 did uh Islam become such a a big uh player here for the Ottoman Empire.
1: So I guess you you immediately pointed to sort of the fundamental um, you know importance of the uh, Ottoman Empire but also in a sense to the problem of using the term Ottomans as you know <laughs> explaining something because yeah. they 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 ruled for so long and over such a vast uh, area but also um, at other points it was much smaller and the, the 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 kinds of rule of let's say the the 15th century sort of a uh, local chieftaincy uh, to you know early 20th century uh, you know industrialized uh, nation state um mm-hmm. is you know with a vast army and the navy i mean it's just we're talking about completely different things mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. are because it's the same dynasty uh you know are called Ottomans. So we really need to be... I mean, that's why the Ottomans pop up everywhere because they're (laughs) so crucial for so many different periods, but but we need to disentangle this a little bit. And I mean, Ottomans are very important for this book, uh, obviously. So index entry on the Ottomans is vast. (laughs) (laughs) But but we need to take it apart a bit because it really means different things in in different uh, periods. So, um, as you mentioned, sort of in, you know in the 14th century and sort of after the end of the Abbasid um, uh, Caliphate, um, uh, Sufism becomes a uh, very you know uh, new forms of Sufism emerge that 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 become very popular in in very different uh, scenarios um, you know across much of the Eastern Mediterranean, Anatolia, but all the way to India and various forms of 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 Shiism also. Um, uh, especially sort of popular um, forms of Shi'ism um, become uh, uh, very widespread and you no longer have necessarily a sort of central Sunni authority that can say, you know, what's what's right or 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 what's um, uh, wrong. And so it is sort of uh, out of, and then you have new populations which start to embrace Islam, um, uh, Turkic-speaking populations, uh, and you have a lot of migration and a lot of sort of, you know, because of all these conquests, and, and uh, including you know the, the Mongol conquests, and then in their rivalry with the Mamluks, you have you know uh, well a lot of population movement and mm. and general um, you know insecurity. Uh, and uh, it is in that sort of wider context that two main movements uh, emerged that have a strong sort of tribal backing, both in sort of Turkic speaking uh anatolia and both have a strong religious uh element um uh to them and one are the what become later the ottomans and the others are the Safavids. the Safavids themselves are actually originally a sufi order hmm. but um where you know the the leadership is sort of passed down in the Safavid family of the order but that takes on also the the form of sort of a social political movement with the eventual aim to to founding uh, a state and in the beginning the ottomans and the safavids are actually uh, very close uh, including personally close mm-hmm. and help each other out so um uh, this is uh, you know in, including up until the 15th uh, century but the ottomans then established sort of you know principality in in what's now turkey and uh you know eventually expand their power uh, there and uh, the safavids uh expand their power in northern Iran. and um in, in 1501 they famously take over uh uh iran uh as a as a whole and establish uh, shiism as the uh, twelve shiism as the state religion there hmm. um and um uh, it is sort of from then on that uh, especially the ottomans and the safavids Fall out very strongly, and um, you know one of the reasons for their fallout is not just sort of a different interpretation of religion, but it's also that they actually um, compete for the allegiance of of similar populations hmm. uh, in what comes becomes the borderland between the Iran and and Turkey and Ottoman hmm. Turkey, sort of Anatolia, and there uh, much of the population uh, actually embraces a sort of uh, uh, you know. Broadly speaking, you know the family of the Prophet Islam uh, that that has some Shi overtones, but perhaps you know doesn't would perhaps also be classified as Sunni. Um, it's sort of a you know a little bit of a mix of of uh, things, and it's only sort of when the two sides start to form their own states that it becomes more normatively um, uh, you know associated with with either. Uh, or and mm. that from then on you have sort of uh, sectarianization in a sense from the top of these populations um, and, and and trying to draw them you know to either side or the other
2: mm.
1: and so, then very quickly the two sides are at war with each other mm-hmm. precisely for this reason you know because the the Ottomans say, well, some of the populations that should be our citizens, or well, not citizens but subjects, mm-hmm. are actually now fighting for the Safavids. So this is undermining our sovereignty. So we have to, you know, fight a war against them. And and the Safavid also have have more territorial ambitions. So this starts a period where you have sort of two major states fighting each other for, you know, very long time. And both sides invoke religious arguments to mm. to legitimize this. So there's mm. sort of, you know, they they issue the clerics issue fatwa saying, well, the others are unbelievers and we have to mm. fight them. And and this is something new, it's something that hadn't happened really before, especially that you have, you know, Sunni and Shi powers uh saying that sort of against each other.
0: Mm. It's 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 interesting, especially because I go to to northern Iran and the Safids, they they you talk about how during that period there was some coinciding with the consolidation of Persian culture in, in, in Iran. Can you talk about this? Um, I don't know, you said mixture of sorts of, of Saffids with, you know, Persians, obviously Persia is a very long, you know, ancient, uh, civilization and, you know, it persists, but how did this period, the Safids and the Persians kind of, uh, mix, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, so, uh, when when islam first spread to iran uh you know again it took quite a while for for the majority of the population to convert and they initially converted to sunnism mm-hmm. and so actually some of the founders of the sunni legal schools are originally i mean persian speakers and yeah. and you have actually in that period you have a lot of foundational work even of sunnism are written in in persian so it's 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 very interesting actually mm-hmm. But from the Safavid uh, conversion on, uh, and that was actually the first time where you had a sort of enforced conversion, uh, in, in a sense. So the Safavids appointed Friday prayer leaders across the whole country, and they had this famous group of enforcers that would roam the streets and, and you know, uh, well, Sunnis and Shias go to the mosque at different times of the day, for example, pray slightly differently, which just make sure that people actually do everything according to the to the Shi way, and 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 people could get beaten up, or or killed, or expelled from the country if they didn't conform. So um, you know, this I think is a is a break in a sense in with what had happened before. And then over time, I mean, the Safavid Empire is is uh, is also you know uh, economically successful relatively in the 16th century and and uh, and afterwards. And uh, so you know. Iranian culture changes and, and starts to uh you know contain a very strong um Shi element uh in the, in the rituals. There's also a lot of sort of cultural fusion and so on and so forth, but they develop a sort of um also a body of uh you know public uh, um uh, songs and and literature to be read out and 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 visual culture um, uh, associated with with Iranian Shiism that is understandable uh, for the masses and so on and so forth, mm. things that didn't uh, exist before. Mm. Um, uh, so uh, it's from that moment on that Iran becomes strongly associated with Shiism, which it is until uh, today. But I mean, again, one of the things I show in the book is that this is only sort of half the story I and, mean, you know, all the prehistory of of the islamic world um shiism was uh you know most of the early uh, figures uh, were arab mm. um, and and shiism had a played a pretty important role in in sort of arab history or you know arab muslim history arabic speaking um populations mm. before this sort of uh, conversion of iran
0: Mm. So, so this, this, uh, I believe this is this kind of reference to this the twelve Shiism becoming institutionalized in Iran. It's this process, yes. and I guess specifically, I mean, what is it? Is it is it not only just the there was some obviously precursors there as you were talking about with you know some of these things were already written uh, from one of the schools in you know in in, in the kind of um, uh, Persian language, but was it also this kind of at the time? during this period of conflict with the ottomans and then having their own sort of kind of empire i guess the question i have is is how did it become so institutionalized in iran that we still see as dominant today i mean we're talking six seven hundred years it didn't it didn't break it's main it's been it's persisted i guess obviously of course it's not this majority i'm sure there's minorities for sure uh that are, are less um big but what is what is it, I guess, that has that holding power, I guess, that you think? Is it? Is it something about this period or this conflict or is it something else?
1: I mean, on the one hand, uh, the the Zafawids themselves had a sort of special charisma, especially those, the mm. early founders. And they were seen as Sufi leaders and those who, who followed them, they really saw them as, you know, well, you know, more than just political figures. I mean, mm. even, you know, mm. very important religious leaders uh then as i mentioned they sort of fused uh, uh, uh shiism with with persian uh, uh rituals i guess and and culture and especially language and uh, lastly i mean this was a a new form of state this was a different state from from you know a, a few centuries ago and it had completely different uh, ambitions um it's also a state that is engaged in uh uh, you know, early modern uh, diplomacy. You have sort of, you know, in Europe, uh, very similar processes going on um, with with you know now Protestant and Catholic states sort of rivaling each other and trying to seal alliances with with you know their relative enemies. So um, you have European powers reaching out to the Ottomans, but especially also to the Safavids, you know, against the Ottomans and so on and so forth. Um, so you know, it's a it's a, a a new kind of state it has more resources um uh and uh yeah i mean they were very committed uh, believers uh, uh, also mm-hmm. and um you know they also appointed clerics uh, to to oversee that sort of enforcement so the safavids uh, invited arab uh, many arab uh, shi clerics from from Lebanon or Bahrain for example or Iraq where um Shiism had survived over over the centuries um but but fairly mar- had been fairly marginal to come and work as you know grand mufti or you know uh, administrator in the provinces to 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 establish this sort of um, conversion so yeah. um uh and uh, on the other hand the Ottomans uh, did the same i mean uh, they they uh, uh eventually established new teaching institutions for the clergy and, um, uh, you know, recruited uh, hundreds of clerics to to work across the empire and uh, promote a sort of Ottoman Sunnism. Mm. Um, but they did not, let's say, in the provinces, especially in Anatolia and so on, they, they knew that the, many of the populations did not necessarily subscribe to that ideal. They were, um, in general, uh, uh, more lenient, uh, with allowing that to to continue um unless people sort of very openly uh challenged sort of state uh, mm. Um But in general, yeah, we're dealing with sort of a, a new kind of state, um, mm. these early modern empires uh, that that become quite committed to to institutionalizing a particular um, form of 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 you know confessional identity. Mm. Another case are sort of the Uzbeks, uh, the Shabanid Uzbeks in, in, in today's Uzbekistan, Central Asia, mm-hmm. and then the various uh, dynasties on the Indian uh, subcontinent. Um, uh, the Mughals, uh, the most famous of them, they're uh, originally also from a pretty strong Sunni uh, uh, background. Uh, But uh, in their reign, you know, they they have so many different religious groups under their control. Most are non-Muslim that they don't enforce one uh, interpretation so strongly. Mm. But on the Indian subcontinent, then you have various smaller dynasties who embrace uh, 12-Shiism very strongly. Mm. And they do that in part to differentiate themselves from the uh, murals. So you always have also embracing now, you can, you know, for like let's say a, a a provincial Muslim ruler who has some, you know, financial means and has some military political means, embracing a different uh, confession is now also a way of uh, becoming an independent ruler, which mm. means keeping your tax uh, tax uh, revenues uh and you know, you can make international alliances, uh, uh including with you know emerging European powers, the 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 British East India Company or you know early traders the Portuguese and so on mm-hmm. and so forth so um, for many it's actually quite a convenient way of of not having to pay sort of allegiance for example to the Ottomans or the Murals who say you know we're the we the we're the Caliphate on earth you know you can't have a you know you can only be our vassal which uh, can't be an independent, truly independent mm. power. So embracing um for example, Shiism becomes a way of of saying, no, we we can be uh, independent. So the Safavids definitely do that. Um there's a, there's a bit of an element where the Safavids sort of think that the other Shi rulers in India should be subservient to them and and some of them are actually inspired by the Safavids to 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 also try to sort of convert their populations to Shiism. But ultimately, the Indians are are doing quite their own thing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but but so you see you know the the this the Safavid, uh, you know, and Ottoman rivalry has a very strong impact also quite far away and mm-hmm. in India these lasting legacies that become important, um, you know, once the British uh, enter more strongly in the eighteenth century.
0: Mm-hmm. I to come to India in a minute, but I guess my 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 big takeaways in 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 looking at the the mongols uh you know over the steppe looking at the ottomans uh looking at the the Safids looking at all these big big empires in this period is really fascinating to me about how these empires were using uh obviously trade uh various elements of economics religion there is a conquering element but i think this idea of governing with all of these different people groups all of these different kinds of yeah. uh, places how you have like a uh you know a centralized way or an institutionalized way of governing all of that and having uh, allowing the space where you know and again this is this is you know mm-hmm. I mean, even in some of these, I think it was uh, you know, before domestication of horses, of course, I think at this period that we're there. but I mean, traveling was still very much tough. And so t- this idea of how you have these very localized kinds of communities throughout a massive part uh, uh, of, you know, you know Central Eurasia and obviously some of the Mediterranean and and, uh, and the current Middle East, it just blows my mind how these places were able to do this. Like these, these empires were able to do that. And for a long time over some pretty treacherous terrain, it's very, I think there's, for me, when I hear all of these, these, uh, these, these histories, it, 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 it's a reminder of how, you know, humans are not really that different from today, (laughs) different times and different things going on. But this idea of, how they were able to, to do that and how in some ways, maybe because things were simpler in one way and and not another, in some ways, maybe there's so many things we can, we can learn from how people were able to govern. Of course, there is lots of raping and pillaging and devastation and war and killing, but um, it's, it's interesting, I guess, when you think about it from a systems perspective, how this was happening with these dueling factions of sorts. What What are your thoughts here?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a very important observation. So they could never be too strict, right? Because it wouldn't have worked, right? Because they uh, populations were very diverse. I mean, and, and these empires ruled vast territories and they didn't yet have, uh, you know, what the modern state had with such rapid communications and, 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 you know, much more, um, well, I mean, they had, of course, you know, spy networks and 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 and, and of course, you know, uh, and so and so forth. I mean, they did know to a certain extent what went on, but it was not, it's uh, not, you know, comparable um, to today. And um, so, therefore, a lot of it was also ruling through being a little bit ambiguous uh, in a sense. So, if you knew there was a prosperous community, but they, you know uh in their uh, you know in their mosques or in their houses of worship they did a bit something different from from what was officially the norm in general they were left alone mm. but what happened sometimes is that you know um uh, uh someone would walk into the grand mosque uh, of of whatever state and claim you know the the ruler the sultan or the caliph or the the the, the leader was a complete idiot and actually it was all wrong then you could be executed for something like that and sort of in the historical record we have to be very careful you have such instances of you know religious persecution but relatively speaking there was quite far apart or it it if it happened it often coincided let's say with a major war mm. um but then a few years later these populations would be left alone again or um, you know, states were quite good at at well, or or just taxing them a bit more, um, uh, and uh, and and making sort of you know money uh, that way. Mm. And um, uh, so we don't necessarily want to overemphasize this polarization, but at the same time, you know, it went on for for several centuries, uh, right. uh, and it shaped the Ottoman self-understanding um definitely becomes one of you know the defenders of sunnism mm-hmm. so uh you know the ottomans have this this this, vast, this long rivalry with the habsburgs in europe mm-hmm. so the so and in that process they um you know try to portray themselves much more as sort of muslim rulers um and then you know in the challenge with the safavids they they become sort of sunni muslim rulers you know mm-hmm. so and that becomes part of the raison d'etat and so on and and has an impact uh, later on and um, uh, so it is consequential but we're not yet talking about sort of the modern state Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um, that's why you know the book is sort of um, split up in four sections the first on this earlier period the second on these uh empires that we're talking about now from about 1500 to 1750, 1800, and then the third part on the modern state, which comes in the form uh, initially mainly of of, um, colonial organization, and in an Ottoman state that is modernizing and embracing Mm. European forms of of statehood, uh, especially in the 19th century.
0: You mentioned the book. It's not – it flushed out a lot, but uh, I guess I want to just ask if it's important about the rise of uh, Wahhabism in, in mm-hmm. the Arabian Peninsula. How uh, we, we mentioned India a little bit and, and kind of the spread to India, and India will probably become more of a, a player in the modern state. But with Wahhabis, I guess, what is the – what's the role they play there during this kind of – uh, you know, uh, state in between, you know, 15 and 1800, you know, uh, what, what is their, their rise and then, and then how, how that, uh, kind of comes on the scene.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, the Wahhabi movement is incredibly, uh, important, uh, for so many reasons, but especially here for this, uh, uh, adversity towards Shi'ism and the way this, uh, really influenced some Shi' relations, uh, ever since the, the Wahhabis emerged. Mm. And so the Wahhabis uh, emerge in the 18th, mid 18th century on the Arabian Peninsula. There's a, a cleric called Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab, and uh, he comes from a small town in Najd, in central, um, in the center of the Arabian Peninsula today, is Saudi Arabia. And from a sort of a, a, a branch of the Hanbali school, one of these four Sunni schools of jurisprudence mm. that have been the most anti Shia of, of all of them. So in it's in that school that sort of the early polemics are, are written. But uh, uh, the Ottoman Empire, for example, the state school is Hanafism. So it's a more, it's not as strongly anti Shi, despite all that rivalry with the Safavids, like in legal terms. Um, but the Hanbalis, for them, really, Shiism is, is absolute no-go. It's uh, I mean, they're outside of Islam, basically. Mm. And um, so when Muhammad al wahab goes on his sort of study tour, um, one of the things about the Arabian Peninsula and also modern Saudi Arabia is that few people know, and also the Gulf region, is that it's actually incredibly religiously diverse, mm-hmm. um, much more mm-hmm. so than than what we think of, you know, Today, about Saudi Arabia, Sunni, Iran, Shi, and I mean, already problematized that a bit in, in Iran, and you actually still have Sunni populations in Iran that you know didn't convert in that um, Safavid era. But also on the Arabian Peninsula, you have pretty big Shi populations, especially in the eastern province and in Bahrain and in Kuwait and Basra, sort of southern Iraq, anyway. Um, so he goes and travels and meets all of these people um, uh, in, in, in in these places and becomes sort of uh, revolted with with you know what are their religious practices and so on and so forth and authors sort of uh, you know strong polemic against. Uh, them and he then makes this alliance with uh, you know an early Saudi uh, 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 ruler, local ruler, and that's sort of mythologically that's the origin of the Saudi Wahhabi alliance, and and that later would lead to to modern Saudi Arabia. And and Wahhabism for a very long time was actually a sort of state doctrine in Saudi Arabia until mm. a few years ago, um, uh, and and so played a very important role. And that anti-shiism, you know was was sort of it's you know one of its key uh, elements. And that really problematized relations both with the Shia inside Saudi Arabia, but also, you know, uh, um, across the whole uh, region, and especially that notion that uh, Shia and others, including some Sufis and so on, are actually outside of islam so they don't have protections under islamic law at all so which means in the most extreme case, they can be killed wow. so when you um have these uh, in the more, in the last two decades you have suicide attacks on and uh, other attacks on on shi mosques and so on it, this uh, school of thought is invoked to mm. to legitimize that and and mm. so it's been very yeah i mean it's been very uh, it has a very heavy legacy um But it's important here because it emerges in the 18th century and then uh, it's just about the time when also European powers start to Mm -hmm. sort of become much more involved. And Wahhabi, um, the general sort of Sunni revivalism that Wahhabism is a part of, uh, become also one way in which to try to resist sort of uh, British, especially British encroachment. And... Mm -hmm. um, Uh, So I have a chapter on sort of Muslim revivalisms um, Mm -hmm. in the book. Uh, And then there is, of course, also a Shi reaction to this very strong Sunni anti-Shi revivalism. And um, you see that in sort of more self-consciously, Shi clerics and rulers in the um, uh, 19th century. But yeah, the Wahhabis are very Mm -hmm. important. And um, I mean, I discuss them at at length in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So, in in as we have the the empires uh, developing or or ruling, I guess in the um, eighteen and nineteen hundreds, you know, obviously you have the British rule in India. Um, so, I could, could just chat about a little bit. Of what was the the way in which the British organized and, and managed various divisions of of Islam within uh, within India. So It's very very fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean, this British period was really crucial. So I think we laid the foundations here now to really pick up all those pieces. So one of the things I look at is uh, law. Um, So how the British sort of institutionalized for the first time, really, um, these legal divisions in a written way. So uh, all of these empires or states and, 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 and rulers that we talked about, generally speaking, they allowed only one legal school uh mm. you know in their re- in whatever they they thought was the right one mm. uh now very broadly speaking so you know in the ottoman empire it was only allowed to be ruled according to hanafi uh sunnism and it, then in you know in safavid uh, iran it was Twelve shi uh, uh the 12, 12 shi school mm-hmm. um so you know it wasn't possible to pick and choose so um you know it was just this was just the, the, the law for Muslims. Then sometimes there were exceptions for Christians and, and Jews or, or other religious groups. But broadly speaking, you know, if you're a Muslim, you know, whatever the dominant legal school of the state is, that, that will be applied to you. But what the British did now for the first time in India, starting in the late 18th centuries, so the East India Company, because it actually started uh, taking control of populations where some of these old, some of these uh Shi uh, rulers that I had mentioned before, um uh ruled actually over very wealthy uh states. And these were some of the states the East India Company first took possession of or started to have strong influence in. So they um uh wanted to uh have a, a legal system. Uh, that they could use for these diverse populations and then you know there was a sort of uh, a relationship between you know some of the ways in which some of these officials and judges were trained uh, some of them were stud, you know, trained in the Orientalist tradition that was emerging in the universities back in in England at the time. So, you know, the study the the religion and 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 culture sort of of the Orient. Um, and in that vein, they said, well, there's Sunnis and Shias, and they're also so we have to have a different legal system for both of them. Um, and uh, especially if the ruling families were Shia and and some of the large merchants were Shia, this was actually quite important for them. So they started writing uh, legal codes where um, uh, these transactions and, 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 and inheritance and so on were codified according to whatever school you personally embraced. So when you went to the judge, you had to say what you were. And they started publishing books uh, uh, based on this. And then eventually um, they also started doing censuses um, where they asked people, so what is your religion and then what is your sect uh, underneath that? Um, and that was again, that was a completely um, new phenomenon. It had never really happened. Uh, the Ottomans uh, uh, would never have done something like that and, and never, never did ever after. So um, they always um, uh, even in the later, even until the early 20th century, they always said, well, Muslims is just Muslims. You know, there's no sect or something like, you know, you couldn't say, well, I'm a Shi Muslim, I want to be th- treated differently in court or or something uh, like that. So what the British did there was was transformative, and I think really had a very strong impact because they also then started implementing this in different parts uh, of the empire, and um, you know, eventually, after the First World War, they um, uh, obviously had the British Mandate for Iraq, which which created Iraq as a modern state, and they also saw so Sunni Shi as two completely different categories politically and and legally speaking, and you know, which basically set up Iraq. The way it is today and 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 created a lot of these these problems that that we saw uh, uh, afterwards so i think one can trace back quite a lot of this um stuff to to british india
0: so let me get this straight i i remember reading some of this in the book and it was, it was hard to, to i never thought of it this way so i was wrapping my head around it you had the monarchy the british empire in india
2: <laughs>
0: you know, systematizing laws for big groups of a religion that's not their own.
1: Yes, I mean the British Empire ruled over half the world, so it it uh, yeah it, it came up with all sorts of things. I mean the the whole question of caste is is uh-huh. is, is the more famous one in India that you know, the British. Uh, some say invented caste, or others said, you know, formalized it, because caste was also something you could put on the census, or so you were asked, you know, which caste you were. And, and some of these things were not really used in that way before, or or were unspoken, or some people, you know, didn't really know. I mean, in the case of the Muslims, yes. Uh, and the first census, many didn't tick a, a sectarian box. So yeah. then there was an internal investigation, why didn't that happen? So the next uh, 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 census, uh, you know, the, 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 the officials were asked to see how people pray and then tick the box for them. So um, I mean, there was definitely such a process where, in in relationship with the state, um, you know, sectarian uh, identity became stronger. In some cases, was even created for for certain groups. There were some small groups which had, you know, uh, were sort of a mix between Hinduism and uh, and 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 Islam. And, uh, you know, in, in certain practices uh, uh, were more like that and the others like that. They, you know, and and the, the, the officials just said, well, that's not possible. We need to fit you in, in one of these categories also for inheritance and so on and so forth. Mm. Because the empires, they always, you know, they claimed they were working sort of within the law once they had conquered the land. You know, the, the rule of law was officially, you know, one of the benefits of of the empire and so um uh, inheritance and 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 divorce and and so on where so personal status law were actually quite important aspect of mm. this whole uh thing and it's personal status law where these divisions are the strongest between the different um uh muslim groups mm. that's, that's
0: <laughs> so fascinating that is that is so so fascinating um Okay. So I guess about the the Ottomans then. So we, we talked a lot about them, the, the Ottoman Empire and all that. But I guess you had mentioned it earlier, this kind of modernization that they were doing uh in the 19th century. So they had a lot of features in place at different points, you know, 16, 16th, 18th century. But as we get to um you know, eighteen hundreds, nineteen hundreds, you know, how did um how did they kind of reorganize things? Um and and this continued uh uh, interaction with Iran and and uh, and what was going on there.
1: Yeah, so I think we talked about that quite a bit. And then what's going on on the other side is sort of that uh, you know the, the relationship with Europe and and mm. just the development that you know the European powers start to become so strong economically and 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 start to also uh, eat away in a sense territory from the Ottoman Empire. Um, mm. And uh, and and so the Ottomans become financially indebted more and more to to european powers um and uh uh you know one of the ways in which this influence in the empire was um, expanding was through protection of religious communities mm-hmm. so um uh, the christians and jews uh, in the ottoman empire some were very large and old communities started to have sort of foreign patrons um and and you know some of these developments dated back Longer, uh, but in other cases, this this sort of intensified in the nineteenth century, um, and uh, so the European states also um, negotiated uh, exemption of their citizens from you know local jurisdiction or something. So you know if you if you had a dispute uh, in in a, in a provincial Ottoman town or. You know, and, and you were a, a Swede, you know you killed someone, you know that that you wouldn't do, you know be, be hanged there or you know. so but um, the same then started to be expanded dramatically by trying to include religious communities wholesale on the self sort of protection um, uh, agreement. And um, then an additional uh, uh, factor here were sort of missionaries who started to operate uh, across the Ottoman Empire. Because the Ottomans at that point were so, you know controlling uh, Jerusalem. So a lot of Christian missionaries um you know were obviously drawn to that and mm. and wanted to uh, well you know convert, um, especially the also the, the Middle Eastern Christians who who were had their own churches, but then also started to be interested in the non-Sunni Muslims of the empire because they realized, well, the Sunnis are are those who strongly identify with the state and and with Sunni Islam are very hard to convert, basically didn't work. And then those who are, you know, fully 12 Shia, you know, you know, like, you know, they are also, they don't really, you know, they don't buy any of these, uh, you know, missionary activity. Mm. But they hoped that uh, a lot of these communities that I had mentioned before, like um, the Druze, the Alawites, um who were sort of a bit also at the margins of sunnism and shiism and and some of them didn't have a written legal tradition or or even a written sort of religious tradition they would be more um well easier to convert mm. and they could also perhaps you know be protected uh, by a european power um uh, in return for so if you converted you sometimes actually got that sort of foreign protection which was useful for for business and 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 personal reasons so in the 19th century had a sort of um you know the ottoman state saw this as an erosion of their um Jurisdiction and of their sovereignty, and, and frankly, it was—you know—was interfering in the domestic affairs of the Ottoman Empire through that avenue of, of religion and, and religious sort of protection of religious communities. Mm. And it's sort of in that context that a lot of the you know religious political tension and also violence of the last century of the Ottoman Empire sort of um you know develops and 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 yeah where you can sort of see the, the 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 foundation for that and there are a couple of pogroms um in that period and uh you know eventually very strong um violence also and um uh, but it's in that context of sort of increasing european colonial penetration really of the ottoman empire mm. and then the state trying to you know strengthen its 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 hold also on these communities um at times it tries to appease them, and then at other times, uh, it starts to say, "Well, no, actually, we have to strengthen the Sunni identity of all of these Muslims and and really undermine Shiism and undermine these these smaller um, trends by by you know forcing them to be. You know, to be educated in proper sunnism and and that's the only way uh, to go. But sort of religion becomes the contested battlefield, uh, mm-hmm. if you like, of 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 great power politics in that mm-hmm. uh, period.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, all of that kind of leads us to the the twentieth century, and so you you talk about this in the in the book, obviously, is that we you know there's attempts at you know pan-Islam revivals, pan-nationalisms, but we get to this world of nationalism, and there's uh, two two bits here that are maybe as examples you maybe you could talk about the rise of uh bathism and how this took foothold in syria and in, in iraq that's it's some people may be familiar with that and then how it was a little bit different in turkey which uh they had abolished the caliphate and became a little bit more secular at least at the time If I, if i got this right so just talk about how there was this like in the modern modern state which we we kind of see in 20th century and stuff you know a lot of nationalism and things of that nature and and yes there's kind of uh you know, ways in which religion is kind of used in in certain ways and uh yeah talk about how we got to a little bit more of how things are in the 20th century
1: yeah, I mean, one of the ways in which the Ottomans in the last uh, decades actually wanted to resist this sort of, um, you know, European encroachment and uh, and try to, you know, regain a sort of new meaning for themselves uh, was through pan-Islam. So you had Sultan Abdul Hamid uh, the the second. Who ruled from the eighteen seventies until the early twentieth um, century, and and he sort of became a, a leading figure of pan-Islam, and actually wanted to uh, also bring the Shia in into a sort of pan-Islamic front against um, against colonialism uh, and well against the British and the French uh, especially. And uh, that idea was actually quite, um, uh, uh, you know, became very powerful in India, uh, where people um, sort of, uh, even some Shia, uh, many Shia, in fact, started to see the Ottoman Empire as sort of, um, you know, one of the last, um, because India had been colonized, you know, a century before. So the Ottomans still were nominally independent, although, you know, indebted financially and and with all those caveats that I mentioned, but, you know, they were still nominally independent um, and and they still claim to be the caliph. So there was, a, you know, the caliphate became uh, for a while actually a sort of pan-Islamic institution of of Muslim sovereignty that was seen as outside of of colonial control and to pre- protect it um, uh, at all costs. So in the First World War, when the Ottomans, uh, you know, join. Uh, the war on, on Germany's side. And, um, you know, it's actually German orientalists invent this uh, idea that, you know, the, the, the Ottoman caliph should call for a jihad, um, uh, which he then does. Uh, and uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, Indian uh, Shia uh, and Sunnis uh, actually support this idea and, um, you know, collect money and, and, and resources for the Ottoman uh, war effort uh to try and um you know well protect uh, protect the ottoman uh caliphate but obviously the first world war um uh, uh the ottoman empire is on the losing side and it's really the the final um sort of blow to the empire the the last remaining provinces uh, outside of core turkey are lost um and uh and uh yeah i mean it's the it's the, the the age of nationalism is starting uh and uh both in Turkey and in all those provinces who, who claim you know to to become independent um to to fulfill their national destinies um and uh, so on and so forth and sort of the the more the Empire shrinks mm. Um, the more it also becomes, uh, uh I mean, the less uh, religiously and and ethnically diverse uh, it becomes. I mean, before, especially in the Balkans, it was very diverse, and, and in Greece, I mean, it was very diverse populations and a large, very large Christian population. So for a while, the Ottoman Empire is a vast, it's also a huge Christian uh, 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 empire in a sense. Um, but that uh, uh, becomes reduced, and the definition of the state becomes much more narrower, and sort of Turkish nationalism um, becomes a you know a very important factor. And in in the yeah in the Turkish War of Independence, as it's called, Atatürk obviously becomes sort of the the foundational figure, a military leader in this regard, and in a really ironic twist the uh, uh, caliph uh, uh, and and the ottoman family the sultan's family become seen as remnants sort of of the old order that um, you know didn't work and uh, uh, what what few people know and it's really ironic also in a sense uh, you know for the story of this book is that Um, uh, As I mentioned, in India, the the caliphate remained popular much longer and perhaps wider than than in Turkey itself. Mm -hmm. So when the um, uh, Turkish uh, nationalists are debating whether to abolish the caliphate, the the Aga Khan at the time, so the leader of the Ismailis and a very senior uh, uh, 12-ish politician from India, they 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 write a letter to the to the Turks to say, please don't you know don't abolish the caliphate. It's you know we, we're we're supporting it. You know, uh, it's in the twenties, and then that letter by two Shia figures from India is actually used as the. The final uh, straw, so by by the Turkish nationalists saying, well, the caliphate has become an avenue for foreign interference, and we can't have it. And anyway, it's kind sort of pre-modern, and and we want to you know get rid of all of that. And and so this letter is in effect then used as the final sort of argument for abolishing the caliphate, which is I mean super ironic uh, 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 in a sense, and and also shows that yeah there were many periods when the sunni Shi fault line was not the dominant one, but mm. at the same time it was woven into new uh struggles or or you know into new fault lines mm. Mm.
0: Ah, this is so fascinating. yeah, I remember reading that in the book and it's it's really, really interesting, especially now with you know how we 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 you know we know Turkey today, and you know they just you know had a uh, election recently, and there's just so many so many yeah. things going on it's It's very fascinating.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you asked me about nationalism, and you know, the recent Turkish elections. I mean, actually, uh, uh, symbolize this uh, again. That, of course, nationalism in all those countries, um, uh, officially, in in almost none of them, is officially religious in a mm-hmm, sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, Saudi Arabia might be one of a few uh, exceptions. In Saudi Arabia, actually, state identity is so close related to Sunni Wahhabism, and there isn't much uh, else, and it's very obvious. And you know. But in the other states, nationalism is often portrayed as as sort of inclusive for people of that ethnicity, right? Mm. So it's the language that counts and sometimes not so much the religion. Mm-hmm. And in uh, the Turkish case, you have actually quite a lot of the early nationalists are non-Sunnis, um, uh, especially many are are Alevis, uh, mm-hmm. um, sort mm-hmm. of, and, and they're religious tradition comes uh, in many ways out of that borderland that I talked about before between the Ottomans and the Safavids sort of religious tradition that lies sort of a little bit at the borders between the two and 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 perhaps also other um religions and um this is tacitly is accepted uh in a sense and and uh, um but but it's not talked about um uh, very openly um but so given that then you know the new state is, is meant to be secular uh, and so on, that is not uh, not considered a, a problem. Mm-hmm. But from the 1950s already onwards, you have a pretty strong sort of uh, Islamic turn in, in Turkey and, um, you know, parts of the um, state and, and and also parts of the political discourse become very strongly associated with, with Sunnism uh, again, and also mm-hmm. with Sunni uh, revivalism. And now in this most recent election, it's really, um, you know, the, the question of, Turkish nationalism and sectarian identity is mm-hmm. is being mm-hmm. brought to the fore again. I mean, maybe who have seen this, but um, you know, it was for the first time. I think the opposition leader um, openly on Twitter yeah. said that he was an Alevi. It became yeah. made a video to I that it, yeah. regard. It became the the most watched video in the history of Twitter, which shows you the the relevance and and and, and in a sense the 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 explosiveness of this, you know, it was really something that everyone wanted to see because it was so unprecedented. And then, okay, some of the people who are allied with the opposition list, they said that's great. And, and also, but Erdogan, you know, quite strongly said, well, this is, you know, not really the way we should talk about these things, but very strongly played to his Sunni uh, base. And um, so, yeah, I mean... These, these questions sort of at the heart of Turkish nationalism and the modern Turkish state are constantly being renegotiated mm-hmm. in Turkey, but also in the other countries uh, that we talk about. And in, I mean, actually everywhere. I mean, religion mm-hmm. and nationalism is a topic that is of relevance in every country. Mm-hmm. And uh, almost everywhere you have a sort of more dominant uh, religious tradition that is woven into the symbols of nationalism you know perhaps implicitly but at moments of crisis this can come to the fore and become a more problematic um issue again and others people can completely forget about it and and not worry about them
0: yeah yeah it, i i find uh the history of of uh of um both the Ottomans, but of, of Turkey. And it's just deeply fascinating. There's so many you know, twists and turns. And you know, I've been following the, the election a little bit uh, closely. So it's been it's been really fascinating. Just real quick, because I want to get to the Iranian revolution in 79, kind of more uh, present or more more recently. But just real quick about Baathism, because I, I think that comes up later. How, how did just real quick snapshot, how did that rise and kind of take hold in Syria and Iraq?
1: Yeah, I mean... You're asking great questions. Some of them take longer than I, mean, pretty long (laughs) to answer. I mean, Barthism, you know, one of the things, as I mean, I think we can can now extend what we just said about Turkey, we can extend that to Arab nationalism as a whole, but also to Iranian nationalism or, you know, Iranian politics, Mm. in the sense that, um, you know, per se, Arab nationalism, for example, uh, you know, many of the early ideologues of Arab nationalism in the 19th century were actually Christian. Arabic speakers. Um, there were some important Alawites uh, as well, and and some some Shi figures. You know, and uh, of the Arabic speaking populations, especially in in Syria, you know, Lebanon and and Iraq. I mean, uh, many of them are not Sunni. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you wanted to succeed in this region as an Arab nationalist movement, you had to be uh, inclusive. But at the same time, you know, many of the symbols that that Arab nationalism sort of espoused was, you know, for example, the the Umayyad Caliphate, which was, you know, based in Damascus, the Abbasid Caliphate that we had talked about before, mm-hmm. and you know, it was really the, the founders of the Umayyad Caliphate were the ones that that fought against the the Shi'i Imams and so on and so forth. So it's the first civil war that we had talked about at the very beginning of the. The thing. And so by by embracing these as as role models and as sort of as a golden period of Arabs and Islam, you know, this is the period that Shia feel they were wrong. So mm. um, uh, you know, and uh you know, the Christian Arab nationalists said, well, you know, this is, you know, Islam is part of the Arab, uh, is part of the Arab heritage. So that was one way in which Christian Arab nationalists have absorbed mm. um uh you know. Arab Muslim uh, history, but sort of Shi' Arab nationalists. I think have always been in a bit of a difficult position, and we're more or less just told, you know, to to sort of uh, absorb. Um, uh, I mean, to 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 acknowledge that that well, many of the early caliphates that you know they, they 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 expanded the territory of Islam, and 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 you know were very successful in, in in some ways, even even if they were sort of um, you know working against the, against the the early Shia. Um, but um, uh, I think we can't go into into all the details here. I mean, obviously the Syrian and the Iraqi Baath developed completely differently, and although they have the same sort of ideological origin, uh, in the sense, I mean, eventually also their support bases become completely different, um, mm-hmm. and and the Syrian. Uh, you know, Ba'ath Party and it's, uh, the Syrian regime, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the last decade now, I mean, you know, fought a, a war uh, uh, with much of its population. And, and and you know, the core support for the regime came from non-Sunni populations, whereas in Iraq, it was more or less the opposite uh, around. And the two obviously also didn't get along uh, uh, anymore. Mm. But so it's just to say, nationalism can be formed in in different ways and is a is a is a discursive tradition mm. that uh you know symbols can can shift mm. but mm. um uh, arab nationalism i mean is incredibly important and um i discuss in the book uh, you know at length how arab nationalism becomes you know in in many contexts largely associated with sort of a sunni view of history but then in others like in the syrian baath party um you know what are the reasons that the um uh, uh, sort of non Sunnis become so prominent in the Ba'ath Party. And mm. in, in Syria, this has a lot to do with the French mandate. Mm. Um, you know, at the time of the, you know, the interwar period between the First and the Second World Wars, the French get the mandate for Lebanon and Syria, and the British for Iraq and, and Palestine and Transjordan. And in those mandates, you really have the, sort of the institutionalization of, of uh, sectarian and ethnic difference is a crucial thing and the french also especially work with sort of uh minority populations and they have a policy actually of supporting minority populations mm. and um it's uh, somewhere there that the origins lie of um of sort of the bath party's rise uh, uh, um, uh and i yeah i mean i go at, i explain this in the book yeah. in more yeah. Uh, detail uh, in in iran you have a sort of similar uh, debate like in uh, in turkey so the uh, uh, early pahlavi uh, monarchy which which overthrows the the qajar dynasty the qajars had actually strongly supported shiism in a in a sort of uh, uh, actually Shi revivalism in in some ways or another and the Palavis they were more inspired sort of by what Ataturk was doing sort of language reform uh, trying to uh, take you know Muslim I mean Arabic out of the Persian language um, and and go back to sort of ancient uh, Iranian uh, tradition um, and it's often seen that um, uh, you know yeah I mean this is very strongly related to 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 what was going on in Turkey. Um, but at the same time, I think Shiism had already become such an important part of, uh, you know, Iranian nationalism by that time, or just of a self-understanding and of, of of sort of popular religiosity, and you know what people thought, um, you know, was was um, sort of their their culture that um, uh, it, it never really uh, uh, went away. And so the the Iranian Revolution is seen as sort of a, a backlash, I guess, against the 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 Pahlavi. Policies, but there's also some revisionist scholarship on sort of Pahlavi Iran and and how they actually also supported uh, religion um, uh, to a certain extent. But definitely, the revolution was a break because you had a you know Shi' cleric you know who wrote a sort of manifesto for a modern state uh, you know being established according to Islamic norms, a modern Islamic state and then you know took over power and implemented that in the islamic republic so it's mm. a really i mean it's a you know it's a radical shift yeah uh yeah. but one that if you look at the history both of shiism and of of iran um you know you can't explain actually why that happened uh, mm.
0: Mm. yeah it's, it feels like a big pivotal moment maybe maybe i mean it, you know, this was just before I was I was born, so uh, I don't remember it experientially. But uh, it's, it's definitely in recent uh, history, and it, it feels like a like a big moment uh, for obviously for Iran, but I think for the region and, and I think on, on the world stage. Um, I want to. So now we'll be in more modern times. So obviously, there's plenty of of things to get here. So uh, big stuff is, that I want to ask is: we hear a lot about the the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, how? Again, a lot to say about that, but uh, so as much as much or as little as you want to say about it. But uh, why, how did they kind of arrive on the scene and, and how are they so influential in many Muslim majority countries?
1: Yeah, I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood emerged in, in Egypt, sort of while the British were also still in, in Egypt in the 1920s and uh, emerged as a sort of rebellion in some ways against the British control but also benefited from a lot of the infrastructures so of the publishing facilities you know networks uh, and 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 so on that that uh, that that sort of the the early 20th century um allowed them and they come out of this sort of uh, both pan-islamic tradition and the sort of sunni revivalist uh, tradition that i mm. uh, mentioned before and they organized from the beginning as a sort of modern political party um you know with, with sort of uh, structure and and you know as a sort of mass movement, and they spread pretty quickly across the uh, uh, Muslim world. And um, on you know they have actually pretty different trajectories depending on on which country we're sort of uh, looking at. But um, as I mentioned initially, they definitely become uh, they they embrace pan-Islam, so they actually don't see in general Shiism as their main you know enemy or something. They 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 are anti-communist and they're sort of anti-left in many contexts and they' are sort of anti-colonial at least sort of in the anti-british uh, uh, context um and in Egypt um you know at the time when when they emerge um the Sunnishi issue doesn't play a role in in Egypt at that time I and mean, there's very small Shi populations it's not politically. Uh, relevant. So for the founders on the original ideologues of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Shiism is not a topic that they write about or are interested in. But as the Muslim Brotherhood spreads to places like Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq, and also um, then uh, starts to make an alliance with the early Saudi state, so from the 1930s, 40s onwards, um, the Muslim Brothers encourage people to go more on pilgrimage to, to Saudi Arabia. And uh, starts to see the Saudi state as sort of the closest in the Sunni world to an Islamic state, mm. and and also a state that has major resources and that wasn't colonized, so so more authentic, you know, than than the other states that were properly colonized. Mm. And so they start to have this alliance with the Saudis, and and in Saudi you sort of have a therefore a new generation of of Muslim brothers that are also sort of influenced by the Wahhabi tradition. And it's there that sort of a more anti-Shi element enters the Muslim Brotherhood and has starts to have quite a strong impact in those states where Sunnis and Shias live side by side. And that's especially Saudi Arabia, but also Lebanon and Syria and Iraq. And and in those contexts the the Muslim Brotherhood starts to become pretty sectarian in that sense. So pretty mm. Sunni and and against the other uh, uh, groups or uh, you know uh, other Muslim groups and um, mm-hmm. in in uh, in in Syria this has eventually very strong uh, consequences. Mm-hmm.
0: So three three kind of bigger topics here that we can we can kind of end on because it's more of a more again close it's essentially present day. So. Um, United States obviously has had uh misadventures in the Middle East. <laughs> We've had uh, the war on terror, um we are in Afghanistan or in Iraq, um I don't know what we're doing in Yemen if anything. Uh, there's been all of these 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 uh you know in, you know uh Times that we've been in the Mideast, but in, in terms of the war on terror, so with, with Iraq and Hussein, Saddam Hussein and all that stuff. And I guess what is the so obviously at the current, the United States is a is a big world power and there's other big world powers as well. I guess is there just like a really I mean, there's a lot of good people that work obviously in the United States government and stuff, and there's a lot of mad people that work there, but is there, a, is there like a really big gap? Or like an ignorance or misunderstanding of the region about sunni and shia and all of the different ways in the histories of these things i mean is there i guess at a leadership level I'm, again i'm sure there's people that work in various departments of state that know this stuff and that's their area but at, at a leadership level though various administrations is there just an ignorance of not fully capturing what's going on how there should or shouldn't be involvement um yeah just 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 i guess what are your thoughts i guess on this this, you know the war on terror and how we were in iraq and all that
1: yeah i mean the united states really emerges as the dominant player in uh in the middle east and the islamic world in the cold war i mean right up to the end of the second world war and then for about two decades there's still a lot of british involvement two three decades but ultimately you know the united states take over all these military bases in the gulf and and, and elsewhere and um I mean, the Cold War shapes uh, all the policy towards the Islamic world, and you have actually quite a strong uh, alliance between the United States and Muslim actors uh, in that regard, and something I want to work on in the future. So, Mm -hmm. for example, strong cooperation with the Muslim Brotherhood and with Saudi Arabia and so on and so forth, but also with Pahlavi Iran. I mean, Iran is is perhaps the most important um, uh, ally of the United States, broadly speaking, in the Muslim world. Um, It's at the center of, of everything. Perhaps together with Turkey, um, uh, and uh, so uh, you know, you can't say it's uh, you know it's it's one side or you know or the other. But the uh, United States is completely shocked by the by the Iranian Revolution, and then you obviously have that uh, you know the, the hostage taking, and uh, mm-hmm. you know initially the Americans, um, uh, you know their their calls for the Americans to sort of support the Shah, or, you know support a, a military coup or you know a military regime to to put down the revolution and um uh the uh so this is actually not approved at the at the at the government level so it's uh, is is quite interesting actually that this this did not happen because usually in the cold war if a, such a strong ally was threatened there was actually a military intervention or i mean it could have happened mm. but it did not happen and then Uh, So it's from then on that you see, uh, uh, you know, in 1979, you have actually all this uh, American government correspondence which say, well, what about this Shiism? You know, what is this really? You know, we thought this was... The, these were sort of quietest clerics, and uh, you know they they were sort of anti communist, and and just sat in their houses and and were being nice. And now they're sort of doing this massive revolution and becoming really a hub of 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 you know uh, anti Western revolutionaries or from all across the world. I mean, for a while, Iran became a sort of Mecca of revolution, um, uh, if you like. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of you know misunderstanding already at that time. And then you know, you know, U.S. policy towards the region until today is really um, misguided for that reason that it's it's directed towards you know containing Iran, mm. um, you know, shifting between attempts at more or less attempts at regime change and uh, containing Iran, the Iranian Revolution, and uh, so you don't have a sort of a balanced policy. Uh, 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 you know, you have you know this, this strong support for Israel. This attempt to to contain Iran, and then you know this uh, you know the, the the aim to to protect the oil resources and recycle as much of the oil uh, surplus as possible into um, dollar economy and, uh, and into the United States and and, and Europe and elsewhere. So uh, it's not a, a balanced uh, approach, and that's sort of from before the the more recent military interventions. Um, Started. I mean, you know, the one of the main problems was, in a sense, that uh, I mean, Saddam Hussein uh, and and Iraq. Obviously, you know, we're not involved in nine eleven. So, I mean, but they were in. You know, Iraq was invaded. uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, officially, we were given the the, because of nine eleven. So, so there's no. uh, I mean, this was obviously a, a, a tremendous uh, mistake in in so many ways, and and shaped uh, you know is responsible for a lot of the the chaos uh, and the the violence and the bloodshed in the last two decades. And in the book, I show that you know one of the main problems was that the the United States then very quickly uh, falls back on sort of what the British had done when they when they were uh, occupying Iraq which is to say, you know, Sunni, Shi, and Kurd are these sort of three main groups. And they, we want to build a new state that, that, that gives these group their autonomy or, you know, where these have a representative system and, you know, you're not a, you're not a left politician or a right politician, or, you know, it's not about issue politics. It's about your ethno-sectarian identity. And, and we do a quota system and, uh, you know, one of the other things was for example the legal system that i had talked about mm-hmm. was also one thing that that was implemented again so the united states really took these colonial policies and and implemented them you know in exactly the same way even though they had um dramatically failed to work in so many cases before so obviously mm-hmm. the british were eventually kicked out of iraq there was strong you know the baath uh, uh, party emerged as a response to that with its brutal rule and in Lebanon, we had the same system in place until today. you know the the Lebanese civil war from nineteen seventy five to nineteen ninety was basically because the system didn't work, so this this sectarian power sharing system reinforced sectarian identity to the extent that it led to this you know massive civil war, which at that point was one of the worst in the world so mm-hmm. to uh you know a decade later reconfigure the whole region again according to these sectarian lines. Uh, you know, it was a tremendous um, mistake, and 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 reinforced these categories. Uh, and I think we're living sort of with the consequences of that mm-hmm. until today.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean that you know, it just it it feels it just doesn't it doesn't the way it seems and and the way it feels just feels like a lot of meddling, a lot of ignorance, and doesn't feel. I mean, again, I mean, it doesn't feel right in some ways, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think we are seeing the, the, the consequence, the, um, the Arab spring, um, you know, obviously that was a, was a during Obama's first term, I think, yeah, here, uh, 2009, 11, something like that. And, um, I think there was, it's interesting how people, I think a lot of people were excited about it for a long time, but more recently people have said, well, there, there was a lot of progress, but then there was some maybe failures or missteps. How do you? How do we look at again? With with in the context of all of the the, the history we've discussed, you know the Arab Spring and, and what that was in a, in, a, in a modern modern time, uh, how it was in different countries and how it was you know a really it seemed like a watershed moment. But uh, I don't. Know, some years from it now, what do we what do we make of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, obviously really sad how everything turned out. And uh, it was a moment of great, great hope, Uh, new Mm -hmm. generations that that had lived under sometimes really horrible dictatorships and, you know, where speaking publicly or criticizing the government was a complete taboo. And and so on. I mean, this all broke down actually across the whole Arab world. So, um, you know, you didn't have one state that was not uh, in some ways or another uh, affected by this, or we didn't have taboos broken, although, you know, you didn't have mass protests in all of them, but but in most of them. So it was a really a pan-Arab uh, moment. Um, and uh, therefore, you also had a sort of pan-Arab response. I mean, you know, one of the Crucial things that happened was also just this this pan Arab counter revolution, so the remaining regimes they felt so threatened, and, and many of them actually those uh, in the Gulf or the the monarchies with with much more uh, you know wealth at their disposal, and um, you know they tried to intervene uh, across the, the the region, and you know one of the saddest things is in a sense that um, in especially in the sort of multi religious uh, countries and, and 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 so on. You had very nice um, declarations of solidarity, you know, between different groups. Yeah. Um, but then, when sort of the old regimes or, or, or you know, status quo powers wanted to sort of split the protest movement, they could easily play on these sort of religious and sectarian differences, and um, you know, uh, 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 attacks on on certain communities and religious symbols didn't help. Um, and and split uh, a lot of the the movements. but um I think it it uh, unleashed processes that we perhaps haven't seen the end of it. I mean in, in some ways, now um Assad, right, the president Assad of Syria who was uh, re-entered the the Arab League and uh, in some ways you could say, well, that's the they had this this picture of all these leaders now lining up again and many of them had been in place before. The most dramatic change was somehow in the, I mean, in the Gulf. Where, but it's just you know, sort of the, the the sums of the previous rulers are now in in, in charge. So you have a certain <laughs> elite change there. But in many other cases, yeah, it's the similar faces. Um, and so the Arab, the old Arab order has in some ways survived. I mean, uh, and even in Tunisia, with what which was sort of yeah. the, the most hopeful case. Now you have a strong backlash um, uh, against that. So. Um, and it obviously unleashed. I mean, you know, many many people died, or, or had their livelihoods destroyed. Millions became refugees. So there's, I mean, great tragedies happened. But I mean, I would say that um, this was largely due to the counter revolution. Uh, obviously, also Iran started to intervene uh, everywhere, uh, uh, also in support of the Syrian regime, and 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 committed tremendous, uh, you know, problems uh, uh, there um and uh you know the arab spring became a, a, a way of i mean it weakened a lot of the important states in the region and sort of three major axes that that survived the gulf states iran and and the turkey allied countries they fought out their differences in in those sort of weakened uh states so unfortunately you know politics um um yeah i mean managed to sort of undermine most of these movements um but i think who knows i mean we have to see it this uh, in a longer uh, uh uh trajectory perhaps i mean in in a few decades we might uh, we might look at this differently but at the moment it's definitely a bit uh, i mean it's quite a sad um sad sort of result so far yeah
0: yeah it's 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 really it's really sad i mean it's really really tough to see like like you said people that that were killed and all the refugees and it's just so it's just, it's, it's really awful in a lot of ways. But I think
1: you know, despite all this sort of sectarian violence, you had in almost all states, you have very strong also public displays of uh, you know cross uh, sectarian and cross religious uh, mm. and and across ideological sort of support. Yeah. And most recently in Lebanon and in Iraq, you had really mass protest movements against that sort of sectarian system. You know, to say no, we don't actually just want to be characterized by sectarianity; we want to be you know other forms of identity, and and we don't want know in every interaction with the state be be reminded of that mm-hmm. um, uh, and 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 sort of try to rebel against this institutionalization of sectarian identity that we had talked about that comes from the colonial period yep. but so far you know not successful i mean it didn't uh, the, the systems have not fundamentally changed yet
0: mm-hmm. obviously there's many things still going on stuff in afghanistan iran uh yeah i mean i just want to before i ask the last question i mean It's obviously still ongoing. There's a lot to say about it, but you know, I guess Syria has had this conflict for 12 years. Super complicated. So many issues. You mentioned just you know, with the Arab League Assad, you know, just you know, kind of rejoining like nothing happened. Where does I guess current day Syria and their ongoing conflict where does where does this kind of fit in with all of this? This stuff at the current stage and understanding a lot of the histories. I mean, obviously Syria or that region is super, super old. A lot of civilizations there. There's a lot of stuff that have, that have taken root there. I mean, what do, we, what do we make of ongoing conflict in Syria?
1: Yeah, I mean in some ways you could argue this book was written uh, in response to the Syrian uh war. I mean it uh yeah. it also really affected me personally. I was really horrified by all of this and um the book starts with some observations from uh Syria. I visited Syria um several times before the war um I, I, you know I studied Arabic there and um you know there was uh you know there of course there was tremendous um you know it was an authoritarian regime you know there was repression and so on and so forth but it was also really amazing in a way this this uh, multiplicity of you know mm. people living together and mm. i think what happened in syria is probably sort of the worst that can happen i mean it just um uh, uh, yeah i mean half the population displaced and and so many hundreds of thousands are dead and at the end there is not much uh, uh, change and i think it really it shows that sort of politicization of of sectarian identity and i think that was is sort of the main argument of the book it's it's um you know it's not uh you know religion and politics don't uh, it's doesn't it's not this explosive per se you know it happens at particular moments in time and in this case it's you know you had a pent up uh, anger and 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 for many decades sort of mismanagement so you have a popular movement um, uh, and uh, that initially starts with very good slogans and so on and so forth. But you have a regime that from the beginning, you know, instrumentalizes sectarian identity to, to undermine the protests. And you have regional states who are willing to to also, uh, you know, back the opposition, but also support more sectarian elements of the opposition. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it it really showed sort of the the worst of what can happen sort of in the intersection between local regional and international politics and the invoking of sectarian memory cultures around very important sites such as damascus yeah. um you know which which holds such uh, important significance to to all um faiths and 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 religious mm-hmm. communities and and various forms of of mm-hmm. muslims and is of such strategic uh uh, uh you know importance so yeah
0: yeah, I fully agree with you. I mean, my heart breaks for Syria. All of the things I've read about and talked with people, and it it just it just feels terrible on all sides. Even from a very far away place, uh, never having not been there, it, it just it, it feels there's just this big powerlessness feeling. There's just there's nothing. It's it's very it's very uh, disconcerting in a lot of ways. So hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, you
1: know, but at the I same like. time, you know, you do have now. I mean, overall, I'm telling a story of of hardening of identities and so on and so forth. But you do have a sort of uh, at the moment uh, again, uh, you know, there's there's very little hate speech, sectarian hate speech, uh, and mm. that's part because of the the Saudis and the Iranians, and everybody is trying to mend fences. So mm. you do mm. see that actually states, you know, uh, uh, play big role actually in either sponsoring or allowing sort of you know vicious discourse to to be spread very widely or actually repressing that for a while um I, I you know it doesn't mean fundamentally things are are completely shifting but um you know at the moment we're again a little bit more hopeful that perhaps at least on the state level uh rivalries can can be toned down a bit and that that has an a uh, positive impact on, you know, on on regional conflicts like in in Yemen, where mm-hmm. hopefully this mm-hmm. is now coming to an end, uh, eventually.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely.
1: So the last question I, I I sometimes ask, and I wanna I wanna
0: get your idea on this is, you know, you've written a, a wonderful book. Uh, it's it's thoroughly researched. Uh, it's very readable, and it's so informative. What are the, you know, for such important issues, you know with with the study of of Islam what are the one or two things that you hope you know readers of the book come away with that you can say yes that's what i was trying to express and you have a good understanding of it what are those like one or two big goals i guess for your, for for, the, for readers of the book
1: Well, yeah, I guess maybe just the way we ended, you know, I mean, uh, throughout the Syrian war, there's so many, you know, articles everywhere you read it, well, you know, Sunni and Shia, they just hate each other, or, you know, uh, uh, Alois and and so on. And of course, it's no surprise, you know, they've been at each other's throat for 1,400 years. Obama actually even uh, invoked this, you know, saying, well, this is age-old conflict, nothing we can do about it, and so on. And we're also not involved, we're not involved. (laughs) So, you know, just to sort of see the connection between, uh, yes, I mean, there are older debates, but they become, you know, uh, inflamed in particular context and, uh, you know, politics and international relations play a huge role. And um, uh, also, I guess, yeah, the danger of, of foreign intervention. Um, but not, uh, this should not mean that, you know, you, you take a completely, you have no relations with, with, with this region, um, or, or you leave everything up to, you know, dictators with deep pockets to do uh, whatever they want. Um, uh, so, uh, but just to sort of, you know, be aware that's not an essentialist uh, conflict that has always been there and will always be there um uh, and also see nuances um, i think one of the things i tried to show and that's why the book is i guess called the making of sunnism and shiism could be called the making and remaking is that you know things mean different things to, to different people at different times and the, the meaning of terms can also shift over time and there were many moments when uh, uh well some contexts with Sunnis and Shias, people didn't even know what it was you know they didn't know which kind of muslim they were And others where they could, you know, come together as in Pan-Islam and and embrace a common cause. Um, And, uh, 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 yeah, that there's actually also a lot of uh, shared uh, between um, the two sides. Mm, Yeah. Well, and probably just more broadly, sort of the importance of global history of seeing global connections. so yes, here you know, yes. the connection between the Middle East, Central Asia, and South Asia, but also connecting that to you know European empire and eventually to American interventions and and sort of global mm-hmm. you know global power struggles. yeah I think that's only by doing that can you actually really explain what's going on uh, absolutely, I, I fully agree with you.
0: Well, the book is called The Caliph and the Imam, The Making of Sunnism and Shiism. It's through Oxford University Press. It's out everywhere. Where are the best places that uh, people can find you, whether that's online or anywhere else? Uh,
1: Yeah, I'm uh, still on Twitter, uh, at Toby Matties, and and I have a website. And uh, yeah.
0: That's great. That's great. I, I'm, I'm so, so, so grateful that you gave me your time and your energy for a couple hours to talk about these important topics about a very wonderful book. Uh, big, 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 big thanks. It was uh, so much fun. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for your amazing questions and for really digging into the, this, 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 this long topic. And I hope we haven't put off too many people by talking so long about, uh, about it.
0: <laughs> I, I hardly doubt it. So, uh, big thanks.